So yesterday, my friend Matt was working in the backyard doing this thing, and he, and he cut his finger, and he looks at me, and he goes, do you have a Band-Aid? Okay, if, if you're newer, I cut myself all the time. I have, I have Band-Aids on my finger. Like right now, I, got the, I don't know where this bruise came from, but it, it really hurts. And I don't know why I did that right there. I didn't want to like wrap it, because then it looked like you know I was trying to go across the street rather than down there. I know I shouldn't say stuff like that. I'm sorry. Um, but, but so I'm usually, all, and he goes, do you have any band-aids? And I'm like, I got hundreds. Like, what do you want? Where did you act, cut yourself? Oh, on the knuckle? I got knuckle band-aids. Because what color would you like it in? <laughs> you think I'm kidding. I am. My, I, I even, the last time I went to the, the hospital and they had to staple my skin back together because uh, I, I cut it, I kept the stapler. <laughs> so next time I don't have to go to the hospital, I can be like, oh. And, and, and you think I'm kidding? I will actually do it. I will actually do it. Uh, we have baptisms coming on September 4th. Uh, that is Labor Day weekend. Baptisms are a great time when we all get together and celebrate. Uh, we do a couple during the year. This is the one where Element provides tri-tip and bread. It's a time. Uh, it's a time to remember that God made cows out of steak, and He's gr- brought great blessing upon His people. So uh, if you would like to get baptized next week after every service, we're doing a baptism class. If, you would, if you're not going to be able to make it but want to sign up for them, sign up in the back. We'll get a hold of you. But again, September 4th is Labor Day weekend. It's so the weekend we're doing it on. It'll be a whole lot of fun. Uh, my name is Aaron. I'm one of the pastors here. And there's a uh, nice... I'm trying to determine how I want to talk to you about something today, but I'll just start here. Uh, if you are newer, there are Bibles in the back. If you don't own one, you can have one. If you forgot one, you can use one. Uh, there are sermon notes on all the communion tables throughout the room. They look like this. On the inside, you will get some notes and some questions that take you a little bit deeper into what we're talking about. If you have a smartphone, you don't have to shut it off. Put it on silent. That'd be nice. But you can download an app. It's called Uversion. Click on More and then Events in Uversion. It will come up by GPS in your smartphone. You will get sermon notes, questions, verses, announcements, all that goes along with today's message. Now, uh, before we start today, I just want to want to say something real quickly. Uh, if you call yourself a Christian, that means you are a child of God. One of the things that God calls us to be about as his children, that we are to be peacemakers in this world. I think too often what Christians have done is we have politicized our faith. And we have said, if you are a Christian, you've got to believe this or you've got to believe that. That is unacceptable. We lift up Jesus first and foremost above all things. We keep thinking that if we would just get people to agree with us about these certain things, well, then the world would all be better. It's not. It's only when Jesus is lifted up and people believe will we actually have unity. This all goes into what we're talking about today throughout the scriptures. And so I would say to you that when people complain or people have, this, have an issue, they, they keep stating. Rather than us as people blowing them off, we need to say, what is the hurt and pain behind their statements? Not just to blow them off. We need to be thinking about and praying about these things. And I think a couple of the ways that I can get you guys to do that, just really simple for you in the next couple of weeks, is a lot of you guys like to post on social media a lot. Okay, so if you're gonna if you're gonna tweet, if you're gonna go on Facebook, if you're gonna Snapchat, which I still have no idea how to do, if you're gonna Vine, if you're gonna do any of these things, uh, you got a Twitch stream, watch play video games, any of those things, I would say every other post you don't post, and instead you pray. Okay, start lifting this up in prayer. Because people need to know the grace and the goodness of God. And that's what we need to start praying for, that he would use us in those ways to bring reconciliation, not just to our country, but to our world. 
And he's going to use us as his people to do that. Sometimes it is darkest before the dawn. And right now, it seems like our country is getting a little bit dark. We do not get dark along with it. We stand in the light, we reflect who Jesus is, and live in his ways. Because only by following Jesus will our country be unified. Why don't you guys stand me and read God's word. We'll get started. This is Psalm 49, verse 4. And it says, For the Lord takes pleasure in his people. He adorns the humble with salvation. Let's pray. Father, this morning I ask that you would teach us what it means to be those who actually lift you up who live in a humble state, realizing that our salvation and our lives are all based in you. And instead of lifting up our own intellect or our own things, we would lift you up so the entire world would know you. And in that, we would become unified and you'd be glorified and your people would live in great joy because you are the one who has rescued and saved us. Amen. Have a seat. All right, so we are coming up to midsummer. We're coming up to our last third of the first half of the book of Acts. A lot of hyphens in there. With that, as we keep saying, you want this series to help you understand the early church, uh, their calling, their mission, their ministry, their focus, so we can better understand how to be a church today. We also know that many of you will not live the rest of your life in Santa Maria, and so we want to give you some things that when you do move, you look for some characteristics of what a church that longs to follow Jesus should proclaim. And the first and foremost of those is the gospel, that Jesus is central, that we are the people who are lost and are broken, and our great God has come and sought us and bought us and wanted to bring us home. We surrender our wills and our lives to him. And what you're seeing in the book of Acts is they're taking out this message of Jesus. Uh, the persecution has begun to affect the church uh, because they have been holed up in the city of Jerusalem because they like the apostles' teaching. And if you know Peter or John was teaching us, it would be like, yeah, we'll hang out here because I like Peter and John too. Uh, they like the fellowship with one another. They like all the cool things that God is doing. But Jesus said in Matthew 28, 19, to go out, make disciples of all nations. And they didn't. They huddled up together. And, and it's sad because sometimes we do this. Either we have fear of what's out there or we have a fear of rejection and we think huddling up together, getting people just like us together and staying together is better than what God calls us to. And I know some of you are Raiders fans and for them they'd probably do better if they would stay in the huddle and never leave it. (laughs) Truth hurts. I know. I know. (laughs) But God doesn't give us that option as a church. He calls us to go out. At the very beginning of the book of Acts, he sends his spirit so we would be his witnesses. Acts chapter 1, verse 8, he says, In Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria to the end of the earth. Last week I told you that the word witness, it's actually the word martyr. And think of that that's how we had it in our Bibles. You will be my martyrs to the ends of the earth. That would have a whole different flair to it. Now, Judea is basically where they're huddled up. Samaria, we kind of talked about that last week. And eventually they will move out. They will begin to disperse. But that's more like in the later chapters of Acts and then throughout the history of the church. So last week we talked about Philip going into this area called Samaria. I told you about the ancient hatred between the Jews and the Samaritans. But another interesting thing of how this all kind of plays out is when the persecution hits the church, the ones that initially went out, the very first ones are these deacons listed in Acts chapter 6. In Acts chapter 6, the church kind of fumbles the ball. They're they're not really taking care of some people like they should, so they install some deacons. Every deacon that they installed was what was called a Hellenist. They came back from what was called the diaspora, the Jewish dispersion where the Jews went out because of stuff that happened in Jerusalem, and they came back. When these Jews first came back to Jerusalem, they were looked upon with a lot of suspicion. So they were kind of kept on the outside. Every single one of these deacons is one of these Hellenist Jews that kind of came back back. And so what you see is that Philip knows what it's like to be an outsider. 
And so maybe this is why he's one of the first to go out. Maybe he had a soft spot in his heart for those on the outside. But he goes to Samaria, a place written off by the Jews as lost, and he spreads the gospel there. I mean, imagine, this would be like you, thinking of someone who would never, ever believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's like, why should I ever go there? They'll never believe. They're just going to persecute me. Why should I show up? Like uh, Washington, D.C. Or Sacramento. You know, something like that. Why would I ever go there? No one's ever, ever going to listen. What Philip does when he gets there is he performs what are called signs and miracles, even casting out demons. And a lot of people hear that today and we're like, casting out demons, and we think Hollywood and hype. Jesus says in Luke 11.20, If it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. So you cannot think of like the exorcist and, and poltergeist and... Green Plato coming out of like every bodily orifice that's, that somebody has. Most times in the New Testament, when you see demons, they're making people sick. They are trying to destroy God's image in people. And so when you read through the book of Acts, you've got to remember it is mostly descriptive. It is telling you what happened. It is not prescriptive telling you what to do. And so what you see by the description of it is that people are being healed and people are being freed from oppression and evil spirits. It was to show that Jesus was still alive. That his ascension didn't remove him. It empowered his church to live in the ways that he did. That the kingdom of God is going forward. And rather than being off limits to Samaria, it's actually breaking through into Samaria. And that's a beautiful aspect of the good news. No one is outside God's purview and love. And these verses are not saying that if you want to go spread the good news of Jesus, you've got to go find Buffy the Vampire Slayer, Hellmouth, and the Hive Demons and start there. What it's telling you is that God's love is open to all people. His power and His presence is open to all people. A lot of Jews at this time would not believe that God cared for or would save Samaritans. The Samaritans believe that God would not care for and save the Jews. And so what you see is these supernatural things that Jesus did while he walked on the earth, those same things are done with the Samaritans. So not only will the Samaritans believe in Jesus, but so would the Jews believe that God was making one universal church, that Jesus is Savior of all men, that he is ruler of all men, that he is King of all men. And so Philip is growing in his calling. Later in Acts 8, you'll see him in a place called Gaza. In Acts 21, he's in Caesarea, and he will have four daughters at that point. And they all love Jesus, and there he is called an evangelist. But that's really what Philip did his entire life. He goes into Samaria, and he is an evangelist. He witnesses. In Acts 8.8, it says that there was great joy because he's spreading the gospel of Jesus Christ. What is the gospel? When the book called together, it says the gospel is the good news that Jesus has defeated sin, death, and evil through his own death and resurrection and is making all things new, even us. So we are made new. Then we live out that good news of that gospel in our lives. We take it to every place that we go. That salvation and redemption is there through Jesus. So we have a question if we call ourselves Christians. How do we bring that type of joy that Philip did in the places that we go? Because we want to be people committed to bringing that joy. So how do you start? Well, I think you start small. How do you bring it to your workplace? You know, there's a lot of people in your workplaces that probably don't believe in Jesus. So how do you live that out? You live it out in joy and love and peace and unity by showing who Jesus is above all things. If you're a student, you show it to your campus. If you live somewhere, you, we all live somewhere, like in a neighborhood somewhere. So you show your neighborhood that. One of the primary sources of joy was this idea of the reconciliation of all people. Philip is a Hellenistic Jew, and the Samaritans and Jews had this history of bad blood. Bad blood. Anybody? 
Uh, Samaritans would antagonize the Jews from the comical to the cruel. Uh, like Samaritans would send up fake so- smoke signals outside of Jerusalem. And the Jews would go, oh, someone's on fire. We better go help. And someone would go out there to help. And the Samaritans would jump them and beat them up. <laughs> it's not funny. It is not funny at all. Uh, the Jews would call the Samaritans a herd and not a nation. Uh, there was one time the Samaritans would take the equivalent of what we'd call like a big slingshot, and during Passover, the, the most holiest time during a Jewish calendar, the Samaritans would take pigs, which are unclean animals, and they would launch them into the temple during Passover, like angry birds. You know, but you're not launching birds, you're launching pigs, and uh, I mean, that is like a declaration of war it's with them. The, the Jews would had this proverb that said, a piece of bread given by a Samaritan is more unclean than swine's flesh. So these are all fighting words. And so here comes a Jew, Philip, a Hellenistic one at that, preaching to the Samaritans about salvation in another Jew, in Jesus. And they believed. And there was much joy because these people all found unity and redemption in Christ. The gospel creates a unity that overcomes years of hurt and mistrust. Think our country could use that today? Exactly, exactly. This is, I mean, the way it does this is we understand that there is one common problem, and that common problem is sin. We all have sin in our lives. Augustine said, all sin comes out of pride. We think we're better than other people. We think we know better than other people. We think we are so much better than other people. It's all pride. We all have sin. All sin stems from pride. We all have a common problem. But there is one Savior, and his name is Jesus. His name is Jesus. And Jesus creates a new humanity. J.D. Greer calls it a third race. And what he means by that is that if you are a Latino man, that's like your first race. Then then say you're raised in a culture that's Asian. That would be your second race. But the third race is what Christ brings and brings us all together. And that should be the largest. Like Jesus doesn't erase your cultural heritage. He simply in the end will outweigh it. Because that's the beauty of the gospel. The gospel overcame all these people's biases and it can overcome ours. We become a people who leave behind past grievances where we refuse to trust one another. We put aside cultural preferences and accept one another in Christ because he's the one who saves us. So we become a humble people because Jesus saves. Open your Bibles to Acts chapter 8. Verse 9 is where we are at in Samaria. So God is moving. People are coming to know Jesus. But there is always a but. And you will meet a but today. His name is Simon. (laughs) Acts chapter 8, verse 9. This is what happens next. But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. And so Luke is now trying to contrast Simon with everything else by using that word but. Simon's not one of those rejoicing. Simon is the guy that's kind of always in the background, always causing issues. Like, you ever go to the beach, and someone's cooking hot dogs, and there's not enough for you to have two, you only get one, and so you get that hot dog, you're like, oh, sweet, and you drop it in the sand. And you're like, oh, what do I do with this? And so you start trying to wipe up all the dirt, because you're really hungry, and you can't get another one, so you eat it anyway. Okay, I had three people in first, nobody in last service, maybe a few of you. Okay, I would eat it, okay? But if it's ever happened, you know, this is what happened. How about candy? Cookies. Okay, so you try to get candy, and so you eat it, and for the rest of it, you got this grit in your teeth, and you're like, oh, what is that? That's Simon, okay? <laughs> so, I know, a lot of buildup for not a whole lot of, but anyway. So, <laughs> I would still drop in the sand. That's how it works. 
Uh, so it goes on and says, They all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he'd amazed them with his magic. Now, you all live in a society where you have special effects and, and movie magic. You've got David Blaine's and David Copperfields and Chris Angel's. And, and yet, still somewhere in the back of your mind, you all feel like you got a little bit of superstition. Like you watch Poltergeist or The Exodus and you're like, That could happen. Oh my God. And you start to think that. When we look at the scriptures, sometimes we think these people are, oh, they're, they're just so far behind us. Those country bumpkins in, in those old ages, we're just like them. Too many of us will use words like coincidence and luck and chance, when if God is sovereign, those things don't exist. Too many people have lucky socks and lucky underwear and lucky t-shirts and lucky pins. you got a big business meeting and you got to go in you're like, I'm going to wear my lucky shirt because it's a good shirt when people like me when I wear that shirt. We're, we're weird. Like, anybody like baseball? Okay, so you, so what do you have? Your favorite baseball player, right? Goes up to hit the ball. What do they do? Cleat, cleat, spin around. One, two, three. Okay, and they walk in there. This is why baseball takes so long to watch. Because they can't just get in there and hit the stupid ball. They're all too superstitious. So Simon does his tricks, but his tricks aren't real. And I'll show you why, actually, in just a minute. But people are scared of him because of the power that he displays. He's got this sleight of hand. R.C. Sproul tells this story. He's a, he's a theologian today. I, I love R.C. Sproul. And he tells this story about how he and a friend golf a lot together. And a lot of times, they'll be like, just him, and so they'll take a twosome and stick them with him, and they'll go out, and they'll golf. And, and almost every time, his friend goes, oh, you should watch when R.C. Sproul hits the ball. It takes off in a blaze of fire. What R.C. Sproul has done for years is he's practiced this trick where he takes two matchsticks, and he puts it down with his tee. And he where he hits the ball off the tee, and it hits those matchsticks, and he goes... So they tell people this, and, and so, people are like, oh my goodness, that's amazing, this is impossible. That's Simon, okay, that's Simon and how people look at him, and I mean, you do evolutionists today, and I think a lot of them take themselves way too seriously, like I think Chris Angel or David Blaine would do a lot better if they didn't believe all of their own hype and all that, uh, but, but sometimes people will say illusionists, oh, they've made deals with the devil. And that's not true. They work really hard at their craft. Uh, one of my favorite uh, magicians today is a guy named uh, Justin Flom. And Justin Flom, like, has this video where he talks about this, where people have actually sent him letters accusing him of being possessed by demons or this kind of thing. And he's like, I am not demon-possessed. He goes, I'm actually a Christian. And I don't mean an American Christian. I mean, I believe in Jesus Christian. That's, that's what I mean. He goes, I'm not obsessed. And he's kind of irritated because he goes, tricks take a lot of work. A lot of work. I mean, when, when, when I was a kid, you know, I, I bought a magic book to try and, you know, I realized how much at work, work it was and I stopped practicing because I just, I just really wasn't, wasn't into it. So what happens is these people are enthralled with Simon until the gospel comes up and sets them free because the gospel is always about freedom. Most commentators agree this is a mixture of Simon's magic of three things. Number one, genuine education. So he knew science, probably some astronomy, superstition. He plays on people's fears, and he used amulets and charms, interpreting dreams and horoscopes, and sleight of hand. Now, in our modern world, this would be equivalent of people who maybe write horoscopes or use crystals or tarot cards. Maybe they claim they saw the statue of the Virgin Mary crying, and they collect your tears and sell them to you for $1,000. Or you go on eBay where you can probably still buy the spear that pierced Jesus' side or the nails that pierced his hands and his feet because, you know, they'd be totally real because everyone on eBay is real. (laughs) Verse 12. But when they, that's the people, believed Philip as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed. Now, you got to take a step back just for a second because Acts uses different words for different things. The word that he uses for believe with Simon here is a word that actually means persuaded. 
Okay, so Simon is like, oh, well, that's interesting. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip and seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now, why was he amazed? Because Philip's power, which is Jesus' power, which is the Spirit's power, was real. And he knew that his was not. There is something fundamentally different about what Philip did. They weren't tricks. They were genuine miracles, and they pointed to a message, a message that was meant to humble people and bring unity in the person of Jesus Christ. Now, what happens when this takes place is Luke kind of now steers you back to Jerusalem just for a minute because all these people in Samaria are being saved. And so now Luke's going to bring the apostles into this so they can bring a little bit more unity. Again, Luke is always in the book of Acts about unity, people unified under Jesus. Uh, In the early church uh, in Samaria, you know, them following Jesus, it was about following Jesus, but it's also more about showing that all men can be saved. It's about the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so it involved the acceptance of these new believers into the universal church as a whole. So what Luke does, he takes time to point out that the church in Jerusalem wanted to make sure the genuineness of Philip's converts. It's like you probably know a knucklehead in high school or college, and you're thinking, that person would never believe in Jesus. They probably say that about you too. But you know, that person would never believe in Jesus, and one day you see him, and they're like, I love Jesus, and you're like, are you like a crazy I love Jesus or a real I love Jesus? Because you're you're always skeptical. So what they do is they will send Peter and John into Samaria. And some people think Peter and John showing up is a way for them to take credit for all of Philip's success in preaching Jesus. But that couldn't be further from the truth. Because instead of minimizing what Philip is doing in Samaria, them showing up, it confirms what he's doing and then extends Philip's ministry. I think today we are too jaded about things like this. This isn't a contest of who can save more people. It's Jesus who saves people. This is to show Philip was approved and sent, and the Samaritans were welcomed into the church. So verse 14. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now some of you just read that, and it doesn't make a lot, you know, you're just like, okay, whatever. To other people, this right here is a huge issue. You know, why was the Holy Spirit not conferred immediately when these people believe? Because we believe if you become a believer, your life is surrendered to Jesus, the Holy Spirit regenerates you right there and takes you and places you in the family of God. That is the baptism of God's Spirit. He takes you and immerses you. He baptizes you into the family of God. So what is happening here? This is the only place in the scriptures after Pentecost where people are said to have believed specifically in Jesus and the Holy Spirit is delayed. And I'll tell you why I think it is and what happens here. Because it's God's spirit, and he has control over his own spirit. And what God wants to reinforce in Peter and John, disciples of Jesus, Jews, leaders in the early church, that there is no division in who can be saved. The same spirit that indwells them will indwell these people, and they needed to see it. After years of hostility, God wanted no doubts that the Samaritans were now included. And we don't know what happened when the Holy Spirit came down. The text doesn't say, so you can't read into it. But J.D. Greer comments, This particular expansion of the church was one fraught with so much hostility, God wanted the Jewish apostles to go up there and confirm it. So you have this temporary separation of the Holy Spirit from their baptism and commitment to Jesus. And it has been so widely misunderstood today. 
Uh, Catholic sacramentalists, they will say that this is why there's a separation between baptism and confirmation. Uh, charismatics of various denominational backgrounds around, well, this is, they'll use this as a justification for a doctrine called the second baptism of the Holy Spirit. Like it's a new act of grace following conversion. We have got to stop trying to make any separation theology out of this because these words are descriptive. They're descriptive. We've got to ask, so what was God doing there? Well, the Jerusalem Jews considered the Samaritans to be second class. The Samaritans considered the Jews in Jerusalem to be second class. They each kept each other at arm's length. And what would have happened if the apostles in Jerusalem would have shown up to the Samaritans? They probably would have beaten them up and sent them off. So what does God do? God sends this guy named Philip, a Hellenist Jew, who's just like them, maybe for different reasons. He shared their fate. He is on the outside. He, at one point, would have been rejected at Jerusalem. The Samaritans receive him and listen to his message. What if then the spirit had come upon them at the baptism done by Philip? All those feelings against the Hellenists and Philip and the Samaritans, well, they'd still be there. They'd be like, well, did it really happen? We, we didn't see it. God in his providence, I think, withholds his gift of the spirit because it's his spirit to do with what he wants until Peter and John laid their hands on the Samaritans. And you see Peter and John, the two leading apostles, now see what happened, and that begins to move forward. And the advance of the gospel now begins to take place outside of the city of Jerusalem. God works in amazing ways to make sure that not only was the gospel heard and received, but the church at large also heard and received it. And they saw these converts as being part of the unified church as a whole. It's all about unity. I mean, do you see how amazing God is? And the truth is for you, if you have ever felt like you're on the outside, like the church has judged you, or the church has marginalized you, or discounted you. That wasn't God. That's people. Jesus loves you and wants you to come home. You've got to understand that he has been seeking you, and chasing you down, and loving you, because he wants you to be part of his family. And if you are somebody who's been part of the church for a while, and you look at people and you say, oh, God can never save them, you need to get over it. <laughs> you do. And so I was trying to think of the best way I could liken this to you without being offensive, because I'm offensive without thinking about it, so as I think how not to be offensive, hopefully I'm not, but I still might be, I don't know. So uh, imagine Lady Gaga, okay? We're going to take Lady Gaga. Uh, I know, it's like, no, she would never become... Exactly, exactly. You take Lady Gaga, and imagine she becomes a Christian, okay? She starts talking about Jesus, and all of a sudden you got these thousands of young kids who just love Lady Gaga. It's like, well, I guess I'll go check out a church if Lady Gaga loves Jesus. And all of a sudden, you know, one week you got hundreds of these kids showing up to all of these churches wearing their meat suits and weird hats and bizarre eyeliner. You know, well, what are we going to do? You walk in and they, and they take your seat. And after a while, they want to change your music, right? Because you're not singing Papa Poker Face. You know, you got to sing something else. The question is, how would you respond to that? How would you respond? Would you welcome them? Or would you leave just when they need you the most? Because you start to feel like an outsider. Because, oh, there's too many of them and I feel run over. Or would you stay and would you help to disciple them and grow them? That is what God is trying to get across to his people. See, after this, did the Samaritans go to Jerusalem and worship with the believers there? We don't know. You know how did the Samaritans believers express their commitment to Jesus in a Samaritan cultural context? We don't know. It doesn't say. A lot of church planters would love to see what happened. I mean, I would love to see what happened. But that's not Luke's concern in the book of Acts. What Luke shows is that God is working in ways that promotes the outreach of the gospel and the unity of the church. 
And so rather than trying to extract all these theological nuances of all this stuff that really shouldn't matter sometimes, maybe we should spend our time trying to work out and practice the implications of outreach and unity for the church. That it's not about our wisdom. It's about lifting up Jesus in all things. Let me go back to these verses so I can finish. I know you thought I was done, but Simon's not done. So, verse 18. Now, when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Simon's response shows two things. Number one, he didn't receive the Holy Spirit because he wasn't a believer. And secondly, he thought it was a trick or some power that he could acquire. Like, I will go and pay them money. And a lot of magicians did this at the time. They'd pay each other money so they would look better. Simon wanted to have the power to give the Spirit, but he didn't want the Spirit himself. Why? Because he wanted to be better than everybody else. He wanted to be the one that people came to for that gift of the Spirit. But you've got to understand, the Spirit wasn't even given by Peter and John. The Spirit is, again, given by God. And so many people miss this because they run around trying to find the next person where I can get the Spirit. These verses show that any attempt to bring God's Spirit under human control is nonsense. It's just nonsense. N.T. Wright says this, The Spirit is the Spirit of the Sovereign God who blows where He wants, how He wants. Neither Peter, nor John, nor Philip, nor any human being then, since, or now can do other than be open to what the Spirit wants, ready to be blown along by the rushing mighty wind, which you'll actually see next week. So Simon believed, and he was baptized, but it didn't mean he was saved because his life was never found in Christ. Because Simon was all about Simon. Simon wanted power to be great. He didn't want to be humble and be like everybody else. He didn't want to unify. He wanted to be better than everybody. Verse 20, But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have, you have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore. And the word repent means to return. Okay? Therefore, of this, you know, come back to who God calls you to be. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. And here you see, Simon still won't even pray himself. He thinks somebody else has to do it for him. He only wants to escape punishment. This is not about saving faith. R.C. Sproul makes a distinction between two things here. He calls it attrition and contrition. Attrition is when you are sorry for something because somebody has a gun to your head or a knife at your throat, like in The Princess Bride, when they go up to, you know, give us the gate key. I don't have a gate key. Fezzik, rip his arms off. Oh, you mean this gate key. <laughs> it's that thing. It's like you, you, have, you have fear of being killed, so you're going to act like you're really sorry. You know, a lot of people in courtrooms, when they get arrested, oh, I'm really sorry, but you let them go, they go do the same thing again. Contrition is where our hearts are truly broken over our sin that we have offended a good and holy and righteous God. What you see in Simon is attrition. He only wants to escape punishment. True repentance is not about getting out of trouble or getting a ticket out of hell. It's recognizing that without Jesus, we are all lost. And our lives need to be surrendered to him, and we do that out of gratitude and for his gracious saving love. Why? Because the gospel makes all things new, even us. The gospel changes us into the people God calls us to be. Verse 25, Now when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. So now they go city to city, proclaiming the good news. Let me try and bring this to a close for you, give you a little bit of history. Uh, there's an early church father born in the first century. Uh, he was actually a disciple of John. Uh, his name is Justin Martyr. Anybody heard of Justin Martyr? Okay, a couple of you. Uh, Justin Martyr is probably one of the earliest and greatest church fathers. He's, he's like my favorite. Justin Martyr was a Samaritan. 
who's a Samaritan. And he speaks about how Simon the magician tried to continue and start a hybrid church. That he became one of the leading heretics in the early church. Later, Irenaeus, another church father, speaks of Simon as the father of Gnosticism, the one thing the church always had to fight against. James 4.10 says, Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. 1 Peter 5.6, Humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time he may exalt you. These things are repeated throughout the Old Testament and the New. It is God's spirit that humbles us. And if we are not a humble people, we are not filled with God's spirit. We are not. Simon didn't want to be humble. He wanted a power to be great. Yet the most humble, those who are repeatedly humbled by God, like Peter, are, have the one thing Simon can ever buy. The power of God. And the amazing thing, that power of God is extended to you as a gift to those who believe and receive. I mean, the Spirit gives us the vision to see Jesus. He changes our hearts so we see the world the way he does, all to bring unity to those as only he can. God rescues us. He redeems us. He saves us. He puts us into his family. And in that family, the most important thing should be Jesus. Our worship of who he is, of what he has done, because only in that will we be a people who begin to live in unity. I know so often we want to go out and we want to like proclaim our own intellect and how great and how wonderful we are. If people would just believe like me, then everything would get better. No, it wouldn't. It wouldn't. The only thing that will bring unity is when the world centers itself on the worship of Jesus. Only then. Because you and I, we all have sin that separates us from God and each other. All the petty little issues we have with each other that kind of separate you from other people, that's all sin. And those same things separate you from God. We have broken relationship with the good and holy God. And this is why communion is so important. It reminds us, so Jesus comes to pay the penalty for our sin. You break that cracker like his body was broken for us. You dip it in the wine of the grape juice. Remind you of his blood that was shed for you and me. So that sin that separates us from God and each other can be taken care of at the place of the cross. And I'd recommend to you this morning that you, you ask God to show you the places in your life where you have placed things above Jesus whether it's your politics or your intellect or, I don't know, the Raiders, <laughs> whatever it is, that he, that he would reveal that to you. And when you take communion, you would lay that down at his feet. And you would have your life and your ministry and your focus on the person of Jesus. The band's going to come up. As they do, we invite you to take communion. Like I said, there'll be some deacons in the back. And if you need prayer, if you're in a place today where you know, you're, you're thinking of, all the ways that people just need to think the way that you think, and you know Jesus is like a far 50th in, in the running, well, you should pray with them. You know, maybe you don't even know how to begin to explain to somebody you know, the, the goodness and the good news of the gospel. They'd love to pray with you about that as well. That our God is the God that rescues us and saves us. I mean, I don't know if, if you understand this, but Simon had all these illusions that he would do. And he would cover himself with these illusions to make himself look better. We all do the same thing, just without sleight of hand. We all do things to cover our shame and our brokenness and and who we are. We want people to think we are better than we are or different than we are. And so we always have these lies and these illusions that we layer on ourselves so people never really see the real us. We are constantly doing this. And what this tells you is that Jesus comes to strip all that away so we can be the people intended for us to be whole and real, saved and redeemed by his grace and love, living the life that he calls us to in great freedom and great joy so nothing holds us in bondage.
There's offering boxes on the side and one on the back, and we give because God gave so much to us. Giving is just part of our worship, so you have the opportunity. We do not pass the plate, and there's food in the back. We invite you to grab something to eat. Maybe grab some sermon notes, meet some other people, go through some questions, and maybe allow somebody to ask you the hard question of, you know, what in your life do you think is more important than the gospel of Jesus Christ? You know, what do you think if people would just believe in, well, then we could solve all the problems? And then maybe trust them enough to say, you're wrong, because <laughs> it needs to be Jesus. As this is how we come into each other's lives and speak the truth of the gospel, because God is so, so good. And he keeps resetting us and picking us up and steering us back towards his vision of who he is. So let's be a people who lift up Jesus first above all things, because only in that where our nation and our world live in unity. Let's pray. Thought of this morning, I ask that you would teach us what it means to be a people who trust you with all that we are. That we would honestly be able to look at our own lives and the places where we have built up illusions around ourselves. Not just illusions where we're trying to fake other people out, but maybe in places where we're faking our own selves out. And that you would come and you would remove the scales from our eyes. So we would see you clearly and see our hearts clearly as well. And we would recognize anything that we have put in the place of you. And it would be dismantled. And you would be first. that when we look at the problems of our world, we would come to a place where we say, teach me to lift you up. And we see how much man's wisdom destroys things. And yet we see in your grace the unity and the hope that you bring. I ask that you would teach us to be such a light in the world That unity doesn't become the goal, but you become the goal. That worship and love and faith in you is what we were meant for. And that out of that comes peace and unity. Humble us to truly live as your children in this world. Honoring you in all that we do. That we would love you because you have first loved us. And we would understand that great love deeper and deeper the more that we walk with you. Open our eyes to see the goodness of who you are. We ask this in your son's good name. Amen.